From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. Our first guest today is UNCW Provost Jamie Weinbrake. After serving as the Dean of the College of Liberal Arts at Rochester Institute of Technology for roughly a decade, he stepped into the provost role at UNCW in the summer of 2020, just as the COVID pandemic was ripping through the country. One of Weinbrake's top challenges has been a restructuring of UNCW's College of Arts and Sciences, far and away the largest of the university's four colleges. UNCW plans for the official separation to take place this summer, creating two new colleges. Some faculty have voiced concerns about this, especially in the humanities. Those professors fear that separating the colleges could mean that sciences get more financial support than the arts. In a way, it's part of a broader tension felt in universities around the country between two visions of higher education, one that sees college as a workforce development institution, and another that takes a more philosophical approach, seeing college as a place for personal exploration and growth. Now, add to that the state's political climate and the growing concern over student debt, and it's a complicated time for higher education in general and for UNCW. But there's also a lot of good happening, including UNCW's advancements as a doctoral and research institution. So to unpack all that, we're joined now by UNCW Provost Jamie Weinbreak. Jamie, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Ben. So the first thing I want to ask you about is some potential big changes coming to UNCW, and that is a sort of restructuring of the College of Arts and Sciences. So for people who have not been sort of following along, what's the big idea here? So um, UNCW currently is made up of four colleges. We have our College of Education. We have our College of Health and Human Services. We have our School of Business, which acts as a college of business. And then we have our College of Arts and Sciences. Um, in terms of numbers, the College of Arts and Sciences includes about 450 faculty members over 23 departments. Um, and they have a single dean that manages that college. Um, the other three colleges also have a dean that manages their colleges um, with faculty numbers on the order of anywhere from 80 to 140. So the College of Arts and Sciences is a really massive organizational structure within our campus. And when I arrived at UNCW in the summer of 2020, um, one of the first things I did was start to talk to people about the structure of UNCW and looking forward to the vision of where we wanted to, to go. And what I came to realize was that the College of Arts and Sciences, um, because it was so big, because it had one dean uh, managing 23 departments with uh, 32 direct reports, um, it, it created some issues with respect to achieving some of the growth activities in certain areas. It created some issues with us doing what we need to do with our external facing work, for example, working with donors, working with funding agencies, working with the state. And so after a lot of conversations over the last two years, we came to a decision to uh, create two new innovative colleges at the university that would emerge from the College of Arts and Sciences. And one of those colleges is going to be focused on the humanities, social sciences, and the arts. And the second college is going to be focused on science, engineering, and computing. And each of those colleges will have about 200 to 240 faculty. Um, they'll have anywhere from 10 to 12 departments within each college, and they'll have a dean uh, that will be responsible for the vision for those colleges, for the external relations, for the fundraising, um, and for working with the faculty and staff in those colleges to allow them to grow, 
and really prosper. And so, so the idea here on this reorganization um, uh, is that we create a structure that, that allows these colleges to thrive, to create their own identities around the disciplines that are within those colleges. Um, part of my history too, Ben, is that I came from the Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, I was there for 18 years. Um, that was a university that had about 18,000 students, similar to what we have at UNCW. Um, there were nine colleges at that university. I was the dean of the College of Liberal Arts, which included all the social science, humanities, and arts programs at a technical institute. And it was really important for me as a dean of that college with those disciplines under my purview to be able to have a seat at the provost's table, a seat at the president's table to, to advocate for my faculty and my staff and my students who were in the humanities, in the arts, in the social sciences. And so one of the other goals of this restructure at UNCW is to create now these two colleges who would have two deans who could advocate for their respective programs. And I, I think it's going to be really successful, and I'm really looking forward to it. So I know that the College of Arts and Sciences, the way it is now, is larger than a lot of other colleges. I mean, it's the biggest on campus, but in general, it's large compared to other arts and science colleges around the country. And it's maybe, in some ways, maybe too big to move quickly enough to respond to changing conditions. So I understand that part of it. But I'm also curious, you know, what are some of the challenges in divesting these two and putting a arts college over here and a sciences college over there? You know, I, I, the, the, we've had a lot of conversations around this. And, and I do want to point out our College of Arts and Sciences, as it currently exists, really encompasses not only what one would consider traditional arts and sciences disciplines, but also computer science, engineering. So we have everything from engineering programs, computer science programs, history, performing arts, um, uh, you, you name it, in, uh, under the current College of Arts and Sciences. Um, there is questions that uh, folks would have who are currently in the College of Arts and Sciences around things like resources. How, how, how do we resource two colleges and what's that going to look like? How do resources get distributed? Um, as I know you're aware, there's a big push uh, across the country to expand science, engineering, and technology-focused programs. And so folks who are in social sciences or the humanities or the arts um, want to make sure that they are not left behind. Um, my argument uh, to when I, when I speak with folks uh, in the humanities and the arts and social sciences is that this, in fact, is a way to ensure your continued important relevance uh, uh, and to ensure the advocacy that you need moving forward to have a dean that's really focused on the social sciences, the humanities, and the arts and, and can advocate for, for those disciplines moving forward. And again, I, I, I was in that role as a dean of those types of programs, so I know how important it is to have a seat at the table um, so that those incredibly important liberal arts disciplines and programs and departments don't get left behind. Are there any challenges around, you know, that cohort of students who may be living through the process of separating the colleges? Yeah, I, we've talked to students. Um, students really affiliate with and have strong affinity for their departments and their programs. Um, there's probably very few students affiliate tightly to their college. Um, 
and and with respect to to the deans at UNCW, a lot of students may not even know who their dean is. They know who their favorite faculty member is. They know who their department chair is. They know who their professional advisor is, and they work with those folks day in and day out. But in terms of where, what college um, they're in, it's it's probably less of an issue. I also think by building two colleges that have a more refined set of disciplines, there's an opportunity to create a tighter identity with with those areas. And um, in, in both whether you're in the engineering sciences and computing side or social sciences, humanities and arts side. So, in fact, I think with the reorganization, we might see an increase in the affinity students have for their particular college, um, unlike what we currently see now. Some of the faculty I've spoken to, and this is not just at UNCW, you know, I, I'm a refugee from the ivory tower. So, you know, some of the friends who are still actively in the profession that I've talked to talk about a concern that there isn't the same support for humanities compared to a STEM type uh, curriculum. And I want to kind of explore that a little bit because I think sometimes it gets flattened into just, you know, right wing conservatives don't like humanities. And I don't think that's exactly the case. I think there's more to it than that. But I do think there's definitely a conversation about what are students getting out of their four-year degree? So how do you think about that kind of tension? So let me, let me first state my, own, state my own personal belief in how important the humanities are in terms of a four-year degree. Um, it's central. It's foundational. Um, it's it's why our what some universities call general education at UNCW we call it university studies that core curriculum is is all about the humanities and, and social sciences and building a foundation for students in those areas because that's where students learn communication skills critical thinking skills how to deal with people with different perspectives and 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 learn from from those differences and so um, a lot of the the uh, skill sets that we want our students to graduate from come from the humanities and come from the arts and come from social sciences. Um, there is tension, though, right? Uh, 10, 20 years ago, um, that we started to see a shift in higher education where um, uh, degrees were looked at more as a path to a career and less of as a, uh, a personal development journey. And if you go back to surveys, even in the early you know, 1970s, students who went to college would always say, I'm going to college because I want to grow as a person. Um, and a, a small minority would say, I'm going to college to get a good job. That's almost shifted now in that, that students are, are, are saying they're going to college to get a good job. So I could see where some of this foundational uh, humanities uh, work um, feels threatened as, as, as uh, we talk more about college as a... Um, direction towards a career and a job. I think what I've, when I talk to students and, and faculty and others in the community, it's 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 not an either or. It's a both and. It's you you need to have that strong, foundational, humanities, arts, social science core, and you need to layer on that strong skill sets in 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 professional uh, education and and career development. And um, we're trying to, you know, the, the term that we use is um, future-proof our, our students in terms of their career choices. So having the skills that, that you can learn so that as careers change over time, as, in, as students' interests change decades in the future, as they lose job, as they want to move and take another job, that they have the foundational skills. And a lot of those foundational skills comes from the humanities. Yeah, I think that's well said. And, you know, you said personal development 
I think that really is the dichotomy where it's there are people who look at it as workforce development versus people who look at it as as personal development. And I, I'm 100 percent in agreement with you on the value of the humanities as as a humanities Ph.D. But I also know a lot of people who did come out of graduate school into a kind of I, I don't want to say hellscape, but it's a tough job market. And so. Is there some validity there for concerns, and I have admittedly heard this more from the conservative parts of our world, about the university system in that it might set up some students maybe with some false expectations about what their four-year degree will get them when they leave? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things we try to do at UNCW is no matter what degree you're pursuing is to build in to your experiences, your four-year experience, um, high-impact practices, um, career counseling, and no matter what, again, if you're, if you're a, a humanities major and you're maybe not even sure what you want to do, that you've built a portfolio of experiences like internships, like um, international experiences, um, um, uh, um, service learning activities in the community where you have a really rich resume when you leave. And so if you choose um, to move into a career that may not be directly related to your degree of study, or if you're forced to do that because of external uh, forces, um, you're still very well grounded uh, in terms of the experiences that you've had. So, um, I, you know, I. I do see there's there's tension there, and I know I've just met with parents this past weekend and talked about uh, some of the issues that they're thinking about, and um, parents who are often paying the bill for uh, their their sons or daughters to to go to university um, ask this question about you know career readiness, and um, you know I, I again I think I I advise students pursue your passion. Uh, make sure you get a broad range of experiences while you're here. We call them high-impact practices. Uh, and build that resume and, and um, continue to, to uh, go to the Career Counseling Center and, and, and talk to them about opportunities. The last question along this line that I, I want to ask is that some of the more conservative voices I've heard from seem like they're talking about more expensive colleges. I don't want to say better or worse colleges because you can have a good or bad experience at any institution. But I've certainly heard numbers like $200,000 for college tuition around. And I want to give you a chance to respond sure. to that. But, you know, does this debate about the financial investment in higher education land differently at a state school than it would maybe at a, at a private institution where, where tuition is just higher? Yeah, so let, let's break down tuition a little bit. Um, and we're pretty fortunate in North Carolina. And if you're an in-state resident, the tuition at our four-year universities is, is relatively very affordable. And, and if it's not affordable, there's other opportunities for financial aid. But for example, UNCW tuition for a year is a little over $7,000 for an in-state student. Now, if you have room and board on top of that, it can, it can add to it, um, of course. But um, it's, it's from a national lens, it's a very affordable state to pursue public higher education. Um, there are private universities, of course, with sticker prices for tuition, $50,000, $70,000 a year. And um, there's financial aid, of course, that comes with some of that. So the sticker price isn't always what students pay, and more and more universities 
um, are discounting tuition by upwards of 50 percent um, to, to attract students. Um, but uh, it, it, in, the, in the private uh, college sector, it, it's a real challenge. And, um, but in the public sector, I mean, I still think one of the best bets you can make as a young person is a college education. And study after study show that the, the economic returns on that investment are significant. And, um, and especially if you're in a state like North Carolina with the uh, tuition rates the way they are, um, it's a huge return on your investment to get a college education. I know historically, including you know, for many years before your time, UNCW struggled with recruiting black and other minority students. And in some cases, that seemed to have a racial component. And in other cases, it seemed to be a factor of income. For example, the message about the benefits of college just didn't seem to be making it into low income middle schools and high schools. So how do you think the university is doing on that front? I think we're doing better than we were. I think we have a lot more we can do. And the diversity of our campus has has grown in both student body and faculty body and staff body. Um, but attracting more students of color is really important to our university. And and part of this is the importance of having diverse um, students on campus because the work world where our students are going to work in once they graduate is a diverse world. And so being able to um, uh, work with students who are different color, different origin, different ethnic um, backgrounds is going to be really important. So, so diversifying our, our student body is, is key and diversifying our faculty and staff is key. Um, I, you know, again, we've, over the last couple of years since I've been here, we've implemented a number of programs to try to diversify the faculty and student body. Um, and we've looked at financial aid and we've looked at recruitment strategies and um, we've um, uh, even established curriculum that um, we, we think would be attractive to diverse student body. There's also a, um, uh, a, a demographic um, question here, too. If you look at the demographics, not only of North Carolina, but, but the nation as a whole, the college-going student body of the next 10 years is going to be relatively flat and may even dip a little bit. And some states are going to see significant dips. Um, the fastest growing demographic going to college are uh, Hispanic women. And so, um, you know, building communities at your, uni building a community at your university that um, attracts a diverse student body is going to be really important for the future of any university. And so, so, so we're, we're investing in that. And, and um, again, it's going to be one of our priorities moving forward. I know some of this is over your pay grade because uh, it's probably even over the local board of trustees pay grade. But there seems to be some interest in the General Assembly to push back on DEI efforts across the UNC system. I believe it was uh, Tim Moore's office or Phil Berger's office put out a uh, pretty thorough public records or their version of a public records request asking for a, a complete detailing all, of all this. Do you think that this is kind of a spasm in the culture war or is this a, a major shift? And do you think that will impact your ability to do the work you were just talking about? Yeah, so you're referring to some actions within the state legislature that a number of states, not just North Carolina, but some other states are, are looking at universities and asking questions about, for example, diversity, equity, inclusion training and collecting data on that. Um, you know, I, I, I think those types of activities, we're watching them very carefully. We're trying to understand the impact that they're going to have. Um, it, it doesn't – those actions don't, don't eliminate the value that we have um, for – uh, the importance of a diverse student body, the importance of a diverse 
group of faculty the importance of building environments that are inclusive and where people feel they can really be a part of that environment, that community, um, building policies and procedures that are fair and are transparent. And so we're going to keep doing that work. Um, we'll have to see, you know, politically how this all plays out and, and what ultimately gets approved and, or, or not. So. Fair enough. And we've got to take a quick break, but we will be right back with more with UNCW Provost Jamie Weinbreak. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman, here with UNCW Provost Jamie Weinbreak. Earlier on the show, we talked about some of the challenging tensions between different disciplines and different visions of what the university should be. But for now, I want to pivot and talk about UNCW's R2 status. So can you say a little bit about this status and, and what does it mean? Yeah, and I think you know some of your listeners may may hear R2 and UNCW's in R2 and may not fully understand what, what that means. So um, the Carnegie Foundation of Higher Education has a classification system where they classify universities in different categories. Um, UNCW has historically been a comprehensive master's institution, which means that we delivered certain number of master's level degrees to a certain region. Um, about three or four years ago, um, under a new evaluation by Carnegie of UNCW's operations, we were put into the R2 classification, which is a doctoral university with high research activity. And um, the way you get into that classification is you have to graduate a certain number of doctoral students each year, and you have to bring in a certain amount of sponsored research, funded research work into your university. So we met those thresholds. We became an R2. And it, it's really, it, it, in some ways, it doesn't change anything. In some ways, it changes a lot of things. Um, it doesn't change anything because we're still doing the important research work that we've always been doing, um, and we're doing more of it, and we continue every year to do to do more research. Research, um, a couple things just on the research activities of our faculty and the university. Um, we don't do research just for research sake. We do research because it has potentially huge impacts for the community, for solving problems, and for educating our students. And so the research we do at UNCW um, always works to engage students so that they can learn from it and always looks to solve problems, particularly of regional importance uh, and problems that have global relevance. And, and you know, for example, we're doing... Um, incredible work in the marine science space. We have a world-class center for marine science that um, does millions of dollars of research each year looking at issues related to coastal resilience and and marine biology and, and ocean observatory work and everything else. So we're, we're doing a lot of work to solve problems, and, and so we'll continue to do that. Um, we are in this R2 space. It does mean that research will get uh, increased attention for sure, um, but um, we're, we think that's you know part of our part of our role and part of our service to this community and and Southeast North Carolina. Yeah, I wanted to give a, a shout out to the um, the Marbionic Program. Yeah, um, which uh, took a, a major role in developing. Uh, I think it was Brevenol. Uh, which is cystic fibrosis treatment, like the leading cystic fibrosis. And I had I'd never heard of that. I'd lived here for a long time. I, I have, you know, family members who, who have dealt with it and just never knew that that's where it came from. Yeah. And and that's another interesting uh, uh, point regarding the research that we do at UNCW. There's, um, um, we do basic research, but there's a category, category of research that, that 
uh, academics call applied research. And that really is thinking about um, how we take the research that we're doing and apply it to solve real problems, real world problems. Um, we've also stood up a new office of commercialization that um, is looking at opportunities where the research that our students and our faculty have been doing in their labs, out in the field, can then be translated into the private sector or the health sector or the education sector in some meaningful way. So it's really important us to, for us at UNCW to think about not only the research we do, but the impact it has on the community and how we get that research out there in an applied nature. So I wanted to, ask, and we were talking a little bit about this uh, before we started rolling the mics, about what a strange two or three years it's been. And so I'm curious from your point of view, you know, does it feel like the university is, is getting back to normal? And is there anything you think is just never going to go back to normal? Yeah, I, I came to UNCW in July of 2020. I was um, offered the position that spring. And, and of course, March of 2020 was when uh, everything shut down. So it was a really interesting time to to move and to start a new position as, as provost at UNCW. There were some incredible uh, shifts that were made by really dedicated, talented faculty and staff and students that, that helped us get through uh, the global pandemic. Uh, all, all institutions of higher education struggled. I think UNCW did an extremely, extremely good job in, in managing the impacts of the pandemic. I attribute part of that to the fact that um, UNCW has also had to respond into the past to other crises like hurricanes. And, and so, so um, addressing a crisis wasn't a super unusual thing for UNCW to, to, uh, to undertake, although the global pandemic had its own you know, issues. Um, we did, for example, pre-pandemic, about 15% of our courses were taught online and about 85% were in person. Probably going forward, it'll be more like 25% online and 75% in person. So we, we saw, and many institutions across the country, saw a movement to the online learning space. And um, folks who never thought they would want to teach online, being forced to do that through the pandemic to a certain extent, learning how to do it and how to do it well, um, are now more open to it. And so we are seeing the opportunity for more online courses. Um, I don't want to discount the, the super important value of an in-person class where you're engaging in conversation and dialogue and discussion with a faculty member. But online classes also have a role to play in higher education in terms of access and, and, and flexibility and ability to, to take courses that, that you might not be able to take if you had to come to campus to take them. So I think that's probably, probably the biggest shift. Um, if there's another important shift that we're really watching closely, it's mental health issues with students, faculty, and staff. And I think the, the pandemic, maybe it's not all attributed to, to the pandemic, but I think the pandemic has uncovered, um, you know, really what's a major concern for, for us, and that is mental health of our, of our community. So we are investing in, we have been investing in improving services to students and faculty and staff for, for things like counseling and, and, and other opportunities. Um, and so that's another, I think, big shift that I've noticed in higher ed over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean... It's it's certainly become more apparent. I think people obviously knew about it before the pandemic, but yeah. it, it rat, ratcheted up the tension, I think, for, for some people. Yeah. One of the questions I hear from, you know, again, my, my former colleagues in the world of academics is that it seems to be particularly tough to reach male students 
mm-hmm. um, who seem to have an aversion to, to therapy and counseling and services like that. Uh, is that something you've come across? Boy, I wish I had the data on that, Ben. I, I, um, I, I know there's people at UNCW that could rattle off those numbers in terms of the, um, the, the likelihood of one demographic to seek counseling services than another. Um, I don't have those off the top of my head, but it, 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 it wouldn't surprise me um, if not only gender, but also um, by race and ethnicity, that there are uh, differences in populations who are willing or unwilling to seek uh, mental health counseling. And so I, I, I know we're at UNCW, the appropriate folks are talking about that. And if there is a demographic that is reluctant to seek mental health counseling, we have to do something to, to, to go after that and, and um, encourage those folks to seek help where needed. Well, before I let you go, is there anything else you would want to add or anything else you're looking forward to over the next, uh, say, couple of years? Well, you know, I, I will say as a university, we're really excited. We have a new chancellor who's in place um, who uh, started in July. And, and this past weekend, we had an incredible set of installation ceremonies to install Chancellor Swanee Valetti. Um, he's going to be fantastic. Um, we are really excited about a lot of the new building projects that are happening on campus for folks who've driven by campus, you're seeing um, a, a really big extension of our Randall Library going up um, towards College Ave. And that'll be done probably in fall of 24, so another year or so, year and a half. But that's going to be a fantastic addition to, to our, our university. And we're, we're also looking at new programming and um, responding to what we see in the region. Um, how do we stand up new degree programs that support Southeast North Carolina. Uh, on a very personal note, any chance of creating a journalism major? You know, I'm going to talk to our communication studies folks about that. I know they <laughs> chatted about that. Yeah. Well, for now, uh, Provost Jamie Lambrick, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Okay, well, we've got to take another short break, but we will be back for a different kind of conversation about education, looking at some serious challenges at Rachel Freeman Elementary School here in Wilmington. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. Rachel Freeman Elementary School is going through it. Over the last year, we've documented a lot of turnover, including principals, teachers, and staff. That, plus a pandemic, plus the stresses that low-income families in a Title I school deal with every day, has led to a breakdown in student behavior. Most on staff have been really hesitant to talk about this on the record, for a variety of reasons that we'll get into. But at least a half dozen current and former employees who have worked at the school have described a similar situation, and it's not good. Chaos is the word more than a few have used. Dorian Cromartie has seen it firsthand. He's a military veteran and recent school board candidate who volunteers at Rachel Freeman, a school that's named for his grandmother. He's here to help us get into what's really going on at the school and what can be done about it. So, Dorian, sir, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So, first, uh, we're, we're here to talk about Rachel Freeman Elementary. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship to the school? So... My uh, my relationships with the school is I'm strictly there for the children and 
to support the families of the children. Um, the reason being is that I spend a lot of time there is because the school's named after my grandmother. And there's been a lot of turnover at Rachel Freeman, both in the principal's office, the administration at the at school, and in the classroom. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen from your point of view? So from my point of view, starting in 2017 when uh, I um, was discharged from the military. From what I see is the the biggest issue is having administration and staff who do not particularly know how to merge or communicate with the population they serve. Meaning that you have administrators, teachers, TAs who come from sometimes within the district or outside the district and they say, all right, instead of trying to get acclimated to what they're, what, who they're working with or working beside, they say, this is how we're going to do things based on where they've been. But what they don't know is a lot of times coming in is that the, te- the teachers that are already there are already traumatized from the population they serve because the population they serve has been continually underserved because of a lack of resources. Yeah, so I want to get into this a little bit. Um, there are a, a lot of black students at Rachel Freeman, and this makes people really nervous about talking about it, um, even if you're a white reporter, for example. But I've spoken to staff there, and one of, I think, the misconceptions is that the misbehavior isn't necessarily you know, about race. It's about childhood experience. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the a lot of the students, and we are talking about elementary school students, um, are displaying some some really bad behavior. You you, you know I've heard multiple people <laughs> describe throwing desks, stabbing people with pencils, mm-hmm. and people are often uncomfortable describing because they they're afraid they're going to be labeled racists. Mm-hmm. But from my understanding, and and tell me what you've seen, is that this has a much more to do with the averse childhood experiences of these students, um, which is a whole range of things, which is leading to you know, basically some some psychological issues that they're working through in the classroom, and that's tough. Right, right, right. So there are a lot of students who are black there, and there's also a lot of students who are black who have uh, disabilities or differently able that are there. And they are, you know, they, they come to the classroom with whatever went on at home, and they're expected to learn in the classroom with a teacher a lot of times who over the years is because the high turnover rate is a teacher who's it's their first time teaching. And it, you're right. It's not exactly about race. It's about having a teacher or an administrator that has grit and understanding to get to that child, to understand that they need to meet that child where they're at. You know, the state and the curriculum is expecting a child when they come to the school or any school to already be reading on grade level. But if that child has been there in kindergarten or first grade or whatever grade, and they do not know how to read and write on their grade level, and the teacher does not know how to reach that child, then it's not necessarily the teacher's fault that he or she decided to just pass them on to the next grade it's the fact it's it's a whole conglomerate of issues you know you have teachers that 
say, oh, I'm just not going to call home to mom and dad because they're not going to listen to me anyway. But that goes back to relationship building. You know, when I was in school at Forest Hills, my first week of school, uh, my teacher called home to my parents and said, hey, look, I'm happy to have your son in my class. And, you know, this is what I think. And that's part of that relationship building of saying, I'm not going to make the first phone call home. Hey, your son or daughter stabbed this student with a pencil, you know, because now that when you make that first call home of that stabbing, it's like, well, what happened before today? You know, and mom and dad have already been traumatized from the school system before. And so they're thinking they're lying on my child, you know. So it it goes back to teacher training. It goes back to relationship building. It goes back to what's going on in the classroom. You know, it, it goes back to the hiring process of making sure that those teachers know the full picture of that child, that individual. I've heard a lot of people talk about uh, Florence Warren. Um, and uh, Councilman Kevin Spears said, I don't know if, know if I can say it on the radio, but she was tough on him and but knew his folks and because she was part of that community and could just make a phone call mm-hmm. and maybe nip something in the bud that someone white, black or other right from outside that community wouldn't have that phone number in their Rolodex, mm-hmm. you know, wouldn't be able to, you know, immediately jump into the issue and be like, hey, I just saw you on Sunday and let's talk about what's going on. The other issue seems to be, from folks I've talked to, is that the district seems to be of the mind that they have one training policy that works whether or not they're sending a freshman teacher to Masonboro or up to Porter's Neck or to Rachel Freeman or or Gregor or anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a kind of a one-size-all fits, and if the teacher's good enough for the school, it's good enough for that school. And it feels like that's not true. Yeah, it's not true. If you take a teacher from Porter's Neck and place them at Freeman and say, hey, teach this class, they're not going to get it. You know, and and it's no fault of their own. It's the it's the system's fault, thinking that there's a one size fits all uh, way of teaching. And what ends up happening is you end up having that first year teacher or that teacher from outside the district or that there's some teachers who come from Cape Fear Academy. And they come to Freeman and they get in that classroom and they're thinking they're thinking that it's a one size fit all fit all. And what ended up happening is that teacher gets burnt out, not within the first year, but within the first six months, sometimes the first three months and say, you know, I don't know if I can say this, but to hell with this. I I will just go home. I will go somewhere else to teach. And the last I would say two, three years, I used to ask teachers, sometimes beg teachers to stay at the school, you know, for the student, for the family, for the child. But at the end of the day, I have to realize that that teacher also has a life at home. That teacher's trying to figure out things at home. And it's a little selfish of me to ask that person to stay there for that child, knowing that he or she's waking up in the morning and and is like, I can't do this. Like it's my doctor has told me that my blood pressure is so high. I'm going to have a heart attack at this school. You know, there's some subs who do not come to Freeman. There's some volunteers who do not come to Freeman because of this issue. And you you have I have seen some TAs, not certified staff, but TAs get control of a uh, lunchroom with full full of kids 
and they know how to get that lunchroom under control and quiet without turning off the lights, without raising their voice. And I have the ability to do it myself. But then you have some teachers who have that experience, you know, and they come from outside different schools and, and they don't know how to do it. They're lost, you know. So it's a it's a dangerous situation, you know. You you I've seen some veteran teachers who been at Freeman since the day it it's open and they know how to connect with kids and they know how to teach them and they'll go on to the next grade and have that teacher who do not know how to make that connection and you'll see that student who was there in the first grade and they're saying yes ma'am no ma'am how you doing and then they'll go to the second grade and all of that is gone you know a, a lot of the time it's that consistency you know you I've seen kids who go kindergarten, first, second grade, third grade, come through the lunch line, and I'm serving lunch, and they're saying, how you doing? Yes, sir. No, sir. I want this. I want pizza. And they'll get to the fourth grade with that inconsistent teacher who's learning how to teach kids herself, learning the curriculum herself, and now they're pointing at what they want. They're you know, what you asked me for, what you asked me that for, you know, looking at me like, looking at me like, what the hell are you doing here? You know, and it's, it's sad to see. I, I had some experience as a teacher in college, and I'll say there were, you could tell what kind of school someone came from, and it didn't map neatly onto race, but there were definitely cultural differences. Mm -hmm. right? You could tell what kind of town a kid came from, what kind of home a kid came from. I taught English, like intro to English and intro to like writing. And so I got a lot of first and second generation immigrant students. Uh, this was up in New York. So a lot, a lot of um, Southeast Asian immigrants. And they were the most respectful students I had, had ever had. Like I had to work on them to disagree with mm -hmm. me because they were, they were just not in their character to do that. And definitely students who came from maybe Brooklyn <laughs> who like were rowdy. You know, they're ready. And I've had one experience where I lost control of a classroom. It was terrifying, mm -hmm. you know, because these are these are legally adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I remember, you know, when I was in college doing teacher training, you know, we went out to various schools. And I remember being in a low income school in central Jersey, kind of a, you know, industrial town. And the teacher was a veteran teacher. It was a white teacher, sort of mixed race. I would say, you know, Hispanic, Asian, white, black in the classroom. These kids were badly behaved outside of the classroom. They walked into this classroom and something came over them. Mm -hmm. And you could tell there was an authority that this teacher had. Mm -hmm. And it was, I remember asking him about, you know, how did you do that? Because I would be terrified of these little fourth mm -hmm. graders. Like they would run rampant over me. Mm -hmm. And he said it was, it was about consistency. It was about this, this particular tone and this like this not harsh, but firm. Mm -hmm. And I think you had to be like really self-assured mm -hmm. in in your skill as a teacher to do that. That feels like a skill set that is incredibly in demand, but I don't know how you go out and get it. So I think the way you go out and get it is you have to train the teacher to be confident that this is your workspace. The only way you're going to have control of this is if you demand respect. And it's not so much being harsh. You know, a lot of a lot of the children come from homes where respect is earned, not given. And also they come from households where they don't know what respect is. And we're not going to get into the 
household thing because we can't control what goes on at home, but we can control what goes on at the school. But on your first day, especially at Freeman, these you have to remember these kids show up with real adulthood trauma at the age of eight and nine sometimes. You know, they already know. They can look at you and tell, I can get over on that person. They can look at you and tell. And if you if you're a teacher, a TA, anyone in the school ha- that has a system of if you do this for me, I'll give you this. And they see that every single time you say, oh, well, if you sit down, I'll give you this. They're going to get over on you every single time. But if you make it known to them, you have to sit down and you have to do your work. And your reward is you doing your work. They get it. But you have to demand that in your space. But if if you do that, and that's why I'm not a big fan of the reward system, because, you know, you have to know how to connect with your kids. And if you can connect with your kids and say, well, you know, I see you want to be a basketball player. You know, you can't be a basketball player if you can't read or write. Because if you do decide to be that basketball player, I'm going to be your manager. And I'm going to say, well, yeah, sign this contract. And in the fine print I'm going to put in there, I'm taking 70% of all your earnings. You're going to be living in that small house with your mom and dad, and I'll be living in a mansion because you didn't know how to read or write. And kids, they they get that. You know, they connect with that. But if you're going to be that teacher that's like, do this for that, or I'm just going to let you run wild all, all over the place, you know, they're going to get over on you because they've already experienced trauma. They already know what's going on. Some of these kids, they show up, they already know how to gamble. You know, I'm a I'm an adult. I'm 31 years old. I'm still trying to learn how to play blackjack, <laughs> but they already know. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah. I think that that's the last piece I want to touch on. I, I know that the school district can't control what goes on in the home. But I think as far as the public's sense of what's going on, I think sometimes there's a lack of understanding and a lack of empathy. When mm-hmm. we say aces or we say trauma, we are talking about some tough stuff. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking about gun violence on your front door. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking about you know, single, you know, single parent families. We're talking about kids in seventh grade having jobs. I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about kids seventh grade that have jobs. We're talking about kids who seen EMS going to the house as they're getting on the bus, going to school, finding out later that day that that EMS truck was for their dad who later died, you know? And so, yes, kids have, uh, adverse childhood experiences. Yes, they need uh, counselors and services, but at the same time also, just because that child is going through something, do not drop the standard of you have to pass this class. And a, a big part of it is just that. You know, they say, oh, well, you know, uh, they're, they're going through this at home and we, we're, we're trying to fix it and this, that, and the third. And I get that. But don't drop the standard. You know, he he or she ha- still needs to know how to read or write. And a lot of times you have these teachers who come from outside the school or outside of the area. And they say, well, you know, th- they have this going on at home and uh, I didn't give them any homework or I didn't make them do their work. And it's like, no, nah, he still is going to become an adult. He still needs to be held to the standard. And it. You know, and, and that's why, to a certain degree, I understand what Dr. Faust said when he did make that comment about the bless your heart curriculum. I do get that to a degree. 
But that goes back to the training that the system has put in place. So, Yeah, and I know that Rachel Freeman is not the only school where the, this kind of issue occurs, and New Hanover County is not the only county mm-hmm. where this problem is. But it has been difficult, understandably, to get people to talk about it, either because it's their own job and mm-hmm. they are concerned that the district is uh, at least anecdotally known for retaliation and intimidation, and because this can be a racially charged issue. So mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate your time coming in and, and we'll talk about it. And one more thing I want to say is one of the reasons why Rachel Freeman is under the spotlight all the time, a lot of people don't know this, the last time I checked, it's the second to last school in the ranking out of the entire state, you know, when it comes to grading, the grading system of the schools. And to me, personally, the fact that the school is named after my grandmother who believed in a free and basic education for all children and the school is second to last out of the state is a complete slap in the face to my grandmother. You know, especially being that she was a black woman who uh, struggled with her own health issues, who could hardly, who could barely see and the school system the school on the ranking scale is second to last in the state. That right there alone, the county should be like, we need to fix this today. But I'm not in charge, so. I I am not in charge either, but I know (laughs) we have to have a conversation about it first, but then there has to be action. action. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's hoping we see some of that and not just turn in a blind eye. Right. All right. Well, Dorian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Well, that's just about all the time we have for this episode of The Newsroom. I want to thank my guests today, Jamie Weinbrake and Dorian Cromarty. Thanks also to our WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell, Jonathan Furnell, and Megan McDevitt. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's show or ideas for a future episode, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.